This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Ari Barblatt. Today, it is my honor and my blessing to be in dialogue with Lisa Kovala. We will be discussing her newly published novel, Sisu's Winter War, published in Sudbury, Ontario by Ladder. 246 Publishing 2022. Lisa is an author and a book coach, as well as a retired high school teacher, having taught English classes in various capacities in Ontario in earlier phases of her life and career. Lisa, it's my humble and hallowed honor to be in communication with you today. Thanks, Ari. It's so great to be here. To begin, please tell us about yourself. Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life catalyzed the scholar you'd become as an adult? So I grew up in Sudbury, Ontario, so about three and a half hours north of Toronto, and to finish parents. Um, and I always um, was involved in the Finnish community here in Sudbury. So we have when I was growing up anyway, there were Finnish dance halls and I belonged to a Finnish uh, gymnastics uh, club. I went to a church that was a Finnish church and I went to Finnish language classes and my neighbors were Finnish even down the street. It was um, lots and lots of Finnish people in this area. And um, so I wasn't really aware of how unique that childhood was until I got older and had my own kids. And the, you know, the community had really changed. There were still lots of Finnish people here, but, you know, we, we don't have the halls anymore. And a lot of those um, Finnish um, activities I, I was involved in no longer existed. And I became very aware of my Finnish history. And I just really wanted to know more about it. So when I started writing, I really thought, okay, how do I learn about um, some key events in history or about Finnish people in Canada? Um, so, you know, doing that research and deciding to uh, set novels around 
um, those things was a way of, for me to learn about who I am and my um, history and my parents' heritage. So I think just growing up in Sudbury <laughs> helped me to um, become uh, the, an author who deals with historical fiction. What aspects of your writing process were most challenging for you? How did you handle those adversities? Likewise, what aspects of your writing process were most therapeutic for you? How did you grow? So in this novel, um, I'm actually braiding three different timelines. So the 1939-1940 Winter War, as well as 1980 Northern Ontario. And um, so I found that challenging because it was a first novel. I'd already written one book called Surviving Stutthof, which was a creative nonfiction about my father's experiences in a Nazi concentration camp when he was 16. So I'd written one book, and I, but that story was really given to me. He, I interviewed him and he gave me this story. This, is, this one was different. I, I wanted to learn more about the Winter War. And I you know, did the research and I was creating these characters. And I had, um, really, I wrote the whole first part of the novel. Well, I shouldn't say the first part, but I'd written the Winter War section of the novel in full to begin with. And then when I was done that, I thought this, this character kept haunting me, right? She wouldn't go away. I, I needed to look at her as an older person. And so then I went back and started writing those sections. So it was how to put those two uh, ideas together. Um, and I went to this um, writing retreat on Manitoulin Island with Gail Anderson Dargatz, who's an amazing Canadian novelist. And um, she really said, well, Lisa, you actually have three timelines here because you've got uh, this war section and you've got this 1980 section, but there's um, chapters in between, which I call the marriage years. So it's like actually bringing, how do you bring those things together to make it a cohesive whole? So braiding it was really um, a challenge. Um, and I'd say also that research um, at times was a challenge. You know, you're looking and looking for particular things that will help um, tell the story. Um, I get really interested in history, so I go down rabbit holes and I start looking at all kinds of things that maybe I don't need, uh, but are also fascinating to me. So research can take a great deal of time when you're doing historical fiction. And so, um, but I love that, right? So it's, it's one of the reasons I write historical fiction, um, but definitely challenging. Um, and then in terms of how therapeutic it is. So for this book, I would say, I think writing for me is always therapy. It's always, if I'm not writing regularly, I can tell it in my body that I'm just not feeling well. Right? I, I think it really helps me to spend time with words on the page. Um, so regardless of topic, that's important to me. Um, but definitely for sh the idea of, of um, looking into my own history, my, you know, my parents' history, my Finnish history, uh, that was important to me. Like, I just feel like I, I want to know and understand things better. Um, things that happened to my family members, things that happened to my aunts, um, things that happened in that country. And also coming for, for the immigration experience, right, the Finns coming to Canada and America, you know, those are things I'm interested in. So I think there's, a, sort of a therapeutic aspect to that as well having to um you know look through look at that and kind of consider that and and get a better understanding of who you are as a, as a person right um yeah so I mean I think there was a great deal of growth in this particular novel because 
it was my first book, like first novel. And the, every choice was mine. There was a million choices to make. Whereas with my father's story, he, he really, you know, you were given the story. This is the story. And then I had to learn how to tell it. With this one, it was coming to, to understand how to tell it and how to use those techniques of fiction um, to make it come alive and how to embed the history without b- making it sound like, you know, you don't want it to sound like a history book, right? You want it to be a novel. It's a story set in a time period. So what can you keep in there? What what can, do you need to leave out? Um, and so all of those choices are, are difficult, but um, yeah, I felt, I felt like I really learned a lot about not only the history, but also about, you know, how to write a novel. So hopefully I was <laughs> a little bit successful. What inspired you to prepare this book? What message do you hope to convey to your readers? So um, my father, when I was interviewing him, he was 11 years old during the winter war and his town was bombed. Um, and he told me about those stories. So when I was working on his book, I was taking um courses at the University of Toronto's uh, School for Continuing Studies. And I was taking courses that were in nonfiction uh, because I was working on his book, but I was also taking courses in fiction as well. And, you know, I love fiction. I'm an avid reader and I taught um, English at high school and um, I studied English at university. So, you know, I I just love fiction as well as um, nonfiction. So I was taking these courses at University of Toronto and I was taking a course with Mariko Tamaki, who's also a well-known Canadian young adult writer. And I needed a story to tell. And I was thinking back to my dad's stories of being a young boy during the Winter War. And, and I knew that the Winter War is such an important event in Finnish history. And I didn't know that much about it. So I felt like I, you know, it was a great time to um, explore it more deeply. And I also was really interested in the women. So what was happening with my aunts? What was happening with my grandmother? What were the women doing during the war? And so that led me to starting to write the um, the beginnings of this um, novel set during the Winter War. Um, so I would say my da- dad was really the inspiration. And so were my, <laughs> my female um, relatives. Um, and then later in my dad's life, after we had finished the book, Uh, we were working on together, Um, it became clear that he had Alzheimer's and not early onset, like my character has, but he had Alzheimer's. And I found, you know, anyone who's experienced that knows that it's very sad. It's a very difficult time for the person and for the family. Um, But I also found it really fascinating, the things that his brain was doing and what he was experiencing. Um, He could you know, when I was in his hospital room at one point, he would see um, other people in the room and he'd speak to them and and I'd ask him, well, what's happening? And he'd explain. And, you know, he, it was, it was really a difficult thing to see, but I was wanting to write a character who was experiencing Alzheimer's, but try to write it from her perspective because I was the outsider, right? Observing my father and what was happening to him. So I wanted to get inside that character's head and what was that feeling like for, for that person. And so again, my dad happens to be the inspiration for that portion of the story where Medi is, um, gets his diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. Um, yeah. And so in terms of a message, Um, 
Well, I think one of the major ones has to do with the idea of Sisu, which is, um, you know, sort of a courage and a determination and that my main character, Mary, has to um, access her Sisu throughout her life from a young child to, an, uh, you know, a young woman uh, during the Winter War and then as an older woman, um, all kinds of places in her life, she needs to draw on Sisu in order to be able to um, survive and, and even some uh, thrive. Uh, and I think that even though it's a finished concept, Sisu, I really believe that we all have that within us. Can you summarize your novel for us? Yeah, so um, it's about a character named Mehdi Saudi, And when she's a young girl, she promises um, to her dying mother that she'll keep her family together. And that promise, the that's a promise that the whole novel is hinged on. So right from the beginning to the end of the novel, she's, you know, really trying to fulfill her mother's wishes. Um, so when the Soviets invade Finland, Mehdi is a Lothasvard, which is, uh, in her case, she's a nurse's assistant. And she's also the sole caretaker of her two siblings. And her father goes to war, uh, but he becomes, um, he's missing in action. And so she decides she needs to do something and she wants to uh, go and search for him. And 40 years later in Northern Ontario, she is, I uh, guess it's diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's. And she is now caretaker of her granddaughter. She has a strained relationship with her daughter, Linnea. And um, now she um, knows that things are disappearing, right? Her, her family is uh, having difficulties. She is going to have to leave her house. Um, she's losing her memories. And she wants to go on one final journey to find a man who... Um, she feels like it might be too late to find him. Um, so it's really about family. It's about loss. It's about love and loyalty also. And again, it's also about Sisu, that concept. What does Sisu mean? What does the title of your book mean? Yeah, so Sisu... Yeah, Sisu is um, a cultural concept that is over 500 years old. I think it's probably the first time it was in uh, writing was in about 1500. Uh, it means courage, determination, resilience in the face of adversity. Um, but it doesn't really have a specific English definition. Those are kind of the, the words we use around Sisu. Um, the best way I can kind of describe it is um, if you're encountering something that you like actually it's very unlikely you can succeed, but you move forward anyways, right? You don't give up. So it goes beyond just being brave. It's like that perseverance, even in the face of, you know, ultimately this is probably not going to go your way. Um, so it's a really important concept um, in Finnish society. Um, you'll see, especially in Northern Ontario, you'll see bumper stickers and t-shirts and hats and people have Sisu and we kind of play around with this wo uh, word, but it's actually a, um, a really significant internal um, power that people have. And again, like I say, I mean, it's a finished concept, but I think we all have Sisu, right? We all have that internal ability to keep going. And I mean, COVID has <laughs> sort of shown that to us, right? It's been such a difficult time for everybody. And yet we have found a way, found a way to keep moving forward, found a way to connect with people, even when it was, um, you know, we were isolated and all of those things. What is inner Sisu? 
And what, what, what would it mean for someone to be named or nicknamed Sisu? Yeah. The noun Sisu. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I think inner Sisu, Sisu is just an internal thing to begin with. So inner Sisu is a little, you know, <laughs> uh, it, we, we, you, it doesn't really, it, it really just is Sisu. It's this internal fortitude. Um, so the name comes from the fact that my character gets nicknamed Sisu as a young girl um, because her friend Marcos um, sees her, uh, you know, do something that is maybe um, dangerous and she, you know, almost gets hurt. And um, he, he thinks that oh, what, what a brave girl she is and calls her Sisu. So she, she gets this nickname from him and that's a name that she carries through her life that he calls her. Um, but again, it's, it's that character trait that she carries with her. Um, throughout the story. So her name is Mary and she's called Sisu, but it's really that uh, internal fortitude that drives her forward uh, under all these different circumstances. So that's where the Sisu part of the Winter War comes from. And the other half of the title, Winter War, of course, it's the war that she's a part of in 1939-1940, Russia-Finland war. But it's also um, when she gets this diagnosis of early onset Alzheimer's, it's also in, although she's not a particularly old, it, she sees it as a, a decline that's inevitable. And so it's kind of the winter, her own winter war, right? The winter of her life, her own battle. So that winter war part serves kind of two purposes, both earlier in the novel and later. What does the image on your front cover depict? Right, so the, the cover, I just love this cover. Uh, it's a um, artwork by Jillian Schultz, who is a Finnish Canadian artist here in Sudbury. And Jillian does work with um, uh, textiles. So it's uh, called Sister Pines. There are two pine trees covered in snow with a very snowy background, and they're kind of leaning towards each other. And sisters play an important role in this story between Mary and her sister Evelina and her youngest sister Nadia. And so sisters were really important. And also you kind of have a sense of um, the Northern Lights in the background. And so I felt like this image was, um, I chose this one because it feels like um, both depicting winter and these, you know, pines that I think are just lovely and ha is reminiscent of the landscape of Northern Ontario, but also of Finland. And um, Jillian's pieces are all fabric. So they're all um, sewn together. Uh, and you can actually see when you look closely at the image, how the um, disparate fabrics are sewn together. And I just love that idea. I think that's so beautiful and in the story uh there's a scene where sisu has um is sitting on a rocking chair that her father has uh, had carved and um she is you know um wearing her mother's shawl and you know she's touching the fabrics and how tenuously the the threads are still holding together because she's worried over it so much she's um rubbed it so that the threads are barely holding so i love the idea that you know the cover of the of the novel um that jillian has created uh connects also to this story why does your novel jump back and forth chronologically between different historical periods in the 20th century how does this advance your plot how 
how does this contribute to the style of storytelling present in this novel? Yeah, that's a great question because I really grapples with how to tell this story. I mean, it could have gone chronological and, you know, started in, you know, 1933 when her mother is on her deathbed and went up to 1980 and told everything in order. But because I was dealing with Mehdi's memory and the situation that she was in, I wanted her to be grappling with memories from her past. So as her current memories are, she's starting to lose her memory. She's starting to realize that she's forgetting things, that she has to leave little notes for herself, <laughs> you know, that she's in a very early moment, she's forgotten to pick up her granddaughter from school. And it's quite a, you know, a scary little moment. Um, and, but she's also the, the, those, longer term memories are still there and sort certainly vivid. So I kind of wanted to go back and forth between the chapters of key things that were happening to her in, in the, you know, the story present of 1980 and then the, the, the important things that happened during the war and how they inform who she is now. So rather than kind of like, okay, this is the story from beginning to end. It, it's that returning to the, um, to the past because it will, you know, show us the reader um, where she is now and what it is she's losing, both in terms of um, family members, in terms of memory, in terms of the, the key things that have shaped who she is as a person. So it was a challenge. I think that was, you know, I, I wouldn't recommend as a first novel for people to say, okay, I'm going to uh, write this sort of braided timeline. But uh, for me, it was, um, it's how I saw the story happen, right? And so it was, it, it takes, it, there was, a, there was a lot of charting and there was a lot of trying to figure out exactly how these things would inform each other and what scenes should go with which scenes so that it would play out in, in sort of a smooth way and make sense that it's not just plopped there. Um, so I hope that it's advancing the plot. And like you say, because it's um, one, like one section will lead to the next section, even though there's 40 years difference between them sometimes. Can you briefly explain the origins, consequences, and course of events of the Winter War and the Continuation War to our listeners who might not have a background in the subject matter? Yeah, sure. So um, Finland has a long history with Russia. Um, Finland was a part of Sweden, and then um, the, then Russia waged war um, against Sweden in 1808-1809, and um, Finland was part of. They were they became a Grand Duchy of Finland, uh, a, a Grand Duchy. So that was the, how it was until Finland declared uh, independence. In 1917. But in 1939, at the end of November, the Soviet Union um, decided to invade Finland. And the thought was that they were demanding land on the border um, to protect Leningrad, which was only 32 kilometers away. Um, and they had demanded that even in 1938, and Finland had refused to give up that land. And so the war began. Um, I've read sources that say that Soviet Union was trying to take over all of Finland and others say no, that it was really just a, a you know, means to protect Leningrad if they had, you know, certain land. Um, so I don't think they expected Finland's response. So Finland had a much smaller army, obviously, and they had much more um, aged weaponry, but they were actually able to repel the Soviet Union for many months 
um, and there were uh, significant casualties on the Russian side. Um, and then um, finally, I think it was in February of 1940, uh, Russia was able to um, you know, turn things around because actually Finland was doing quite well. Uh, I think they had in their favor the fact that the weather was really, really terrible, very, very harsh winter conditions. Um, the Finns were more prepared for that. Um, they were um, better able to, like they were a little bit more, um, how would you say, well, they they developed things like the Molotov cocktail, for instance. They developed multi tactics to help them fight the Russians where they surrounded the Russians. Um, they had the white camouflage um, against the snow, so they were, uh, you know, better able to move around undetected. And um, you know, they were obviously really amazing skiers. So they had a lot of things going for them um, that were maybe a little bit more innovative. And I don't think the Russians were quite prepared for that. Um, but anyways, in February, the, the war turned the other way and the uh, Moscow Peace Treaty was signed um, and Finland lost, I think it was 9% of their territory. So that war lasted 105 days. Um, and then the continuation war happened about 15 months later. And this time, Finland was a little bit more prepared. Um, they had gathered um, more military equipment and they had created a military alliance with Germany. Um, and on June 25th, um, well, I guess Germany invaded Soviet Union uh, June 22nd, I think it was. And then the Soviet Union uh, conducted an air raid on Finland and Finland declared war against the Soviet Union. But of course they were already preparing to do that. Um, and that battle was fought until September, 1944 when the Moscow armistice was signed. And as a result of that war, um, Finland was required to expel the German troops out of Finnish territory. Um, their borders were restored to the 1940 peace treaty. So they actually had gained, made some gains in terms of land during the war, but then lost it with this armistice. Um, and they also had to pay $300 million in war reparations to Soviet Union. Um, and so that was a lot. And they are proud <laughs> to say that they were able to pay that off in full on time. Um, so it was, you know, two pretty significant wars um that um i think Finns and um people like me of finnish descent see as significant moments um in finnish history how has this novel been received since it appeared have any reactions surprised you have any responses caught you off guard uh yeah so it's been really well received, which is very gratifying because as a first novel, you don't know, right? You're just doing the work and you spend years writing this book and you're kind of in a solitary mode. And, you know, you have, a, I had a couple of um, beta readers and different people uh, helping me along the way, which was great. But until it's out into the world, you don't really know what's going to, how people re receive it. So um, I had wonderful um, connections with people who have, um, like myself, have connections to Finland. So either parents or grandparents, or they had maybe an aunt who was a Lothasvard. And so I had lots of great uh, messages and emails and 
Um, people would come up to me and tell me about their family stories, which I just love that there is a connection that, that what I was writing about, um, they felt like they understood that time period a little bit better. And often the case was that their own family members didn't say too much about the war, which I think is often the case, you know, I found that too, that my father, until he, um, until I interviewed him, he didn't speak too, too much about it. So I think that's common that people don't really want to revisit these things, but the children and the grandchildren, they do, they want to know about it. So I found that was interesting. And, but what surprised me was how many people, um, really connected with the, the Mary's story, uh, when she has early onset Alzheimer's that they, um, recognized what she some of her behaviors some of the things she was doing in their own relatives and that was um you know very touching to me that they would would want to talk about the situations they were in because it's not easy right when you have an, a relative who's suffering and um you're you're you know kind of feeling helpless and doing what you can for them and that they would read this and feel that um, they ha- they felt like they could understand what their loved one was going through a little bit more from their perspective and maybe hopefully giving them a little bit more empathy or uh, understanding about it. So those are kinds of, uh, you know, touching things that when you write this fictional story and these fictional characters, but people connect to it in a very visceral way, like it connects to their own story or their family members' stories. And I find that really, really um, gratifying. What does this story teach us about resilience? Yeah, I think the idea of resilience is really key for this novel. And it goes back to the idea of Sisu, right? That idea of resilience. Um, Mehdi is um, such a young girl when her mother dies in childbirth. And so she becomes, you know, the old, she's the oldest sibling. So she's taking care of her younger siblings And so she has to be responsible for everybody really early on. And she takes that very, very seriously. Um, So being able to just, you know, put one foot in front of the other and just keep um, moving forward, that's important for her life story. Um, I do think that Medi is a little bit impetuous and she makes decisions sort of sometimes that are... um, maybe less rational and more um, making a decision to rather than sitting back, she's somebody who needs to move forward. Right. So uh, when she's a, a young woman and she's working as a Lothas Fard, sort of a nurse's assistant um, and she needs to go find her father on the front line. Um, you know, it shows, it shows resiliency. I think it also shows how impetuous she was, she is as well. And then later in life, when she's taking care of her granddaughter, Katia, um, and her own daughter has had some addiction issues um, and had been a, a young girl when she had um, when she had had Katia. Um, Mary has to find it in herself to, you know, continue that role of caregiver for her, her, her own granddaughter. Um, and yeah, so she, lots of life challenges are, are, you know, she has to face a lot of challenges. And so that resilience is just not giving up, not giving up on her own child, not giving up on her um, uh, family members, uh, just keep moving forward. Um, so I think it has hopefully something to say to everybody about, you know, the, the own, our own challenges that we face in our day-to-day life and how we can use to sue that power to within us to um, 
you know, face those things um, because they're inevitable. It's what happens in our lives, right? There's not nothing easy. We have to, you know, keep, keep moving forward in some way. What do you conjecture might've happened to each of your characters after the novel ends? What do you imagine occurred? Yeah. Can you imagine what life might've had in store for each of them after you stopped narrating? Yeah, so I won't talk about Maddie because I don't want to give away the the end, and I want to leave that to readers' imaginations a little bit about what happens there. But I can talk about the other characters. So we have um, uh, Nadia, who who's the youngest, and has um, as we know fairly early in the novel that she is in Sweden. So I feel like. Um, Nadia is married and has her own children and um and is doing well I feel like Nadia is uh you know kind of come out of this a little bit unscathed in some ways um in terms of um Mehdi's granddaughter um like I think Katia maybe I would like to think Katia follows in her her mother and her grandmother Mehdi's uh footsteps by maybe becoming a nurse or a doctor, like, you know, becoming that caregiver um, that Mehdi was during the war and probably could have been as well when she moved to Canada, except that that wasn't really in the cards for her. Um, and Linnea, who has some, like I say, has had some struggles, has had some addiction issues. Um, I think Linnea is probably, um, you know, much more, uh, taking on the role of motherhood more seriously is, you know, p getting her life together. Not that she doesn't struggle, but hopefully is maintaining her health and supporting her daughter. Um, so I, I want to see a rosy, <laughs> I want to see a rosy picture for everybody, but I'm not entirely sure that that's realistic. Um, but I, I feel like by, by the end, um, that, that family is more united than it was um, early on earlier on in the story. How does this novel depict Finnish life in Ontario, specifically in Sudbury? Um, what does it say about Finnish Canadian history, Finnish Canadian experiences? What can this novel teach us about the history and sociology of the Finnish diaspora abroad? Yeah, so I think, um... Because I grew up in, 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 you know, this very Finnish community in Sudbury, um, what I tried to depict in Mehdi's 1980 timeline is what that was like for a lot of um, immigrants coming to Canada, you know, things like struggling with the language. Even after being in Canada for, you know, a long time, some Finnish people you know, sp speak, you know, fluent English, for instance, um, some still struggle. I, I had a friend growing up whose mother decided she wouldn't speak English. So she only spoke to us in Finnish and uh, never really learned the language. Although her husband was absolutely fluent. He worked outside the home. Um, so, you know, those challenges that uh, people had coming to Canada for the first time and having to, um, you know, communicate in a new language, I think that must have been uh, very difficult. Um, and I just wanted to show also that, like, especially in Sudbury and, and places like Thunder Bay, 
and other communities that have a high Finnish population that, um, you know, there was, there was sort of a gathering together of people to create a community um, outside of Finland that was recognizable to them and that gave each other support. And um, so for instance, I have, you know, um, Marcos is um, building a house and he is getting the, his fellow Finns together to help build the house. And that is something very, very common that happened with our own family. My, my parents, um, friends gathered and they, they built the house and the camp too was built in that way. And so I think it was just interesting to, to explore the, the memories I had about growing up here in this very Finnish community and try to depict some of the things that were happening, um, in, in my novel, um, things like, um, uh, like my, my, I remember my parents talking about a boarding house that ha- was owned by Finnish people in downtown Sudbury. And that's where a lot of young people lived when they were, you know, getting their first jobs and, and working. Um, so there was a lot of support for uh, each other in the Finnish community. And I think that you'll find that all over the place, like even into the States where there's big Finnish communities um, and they, you know, built their Finnish halls and they, um, and their Finnish churches and community centers. And even today we have a lot of um, Finnish events um, to gather people together and to kind of keep some kind of connection to, um, to that history and that heritage and that unique culture that they belong to. So, yeah, I think that the story is representative of um, Sudbury, but also uh, Northern Ontario and also, you know, um, Finnish communities sort of in general outside of uh, outside of Finland. What role did interviews with survivors and veterans play in the process of developing this book? What role did first person accounts of the Winter War play in your research and preparation process? which accounts or novels or memoirs were specifically impactful on you? Yeah. So I think the most important interview I had obviously was with my dad. So when I was interviewing him about his war experiences, um, it was his first person accounts of the winter war that really led to this book. Um, And, you know, he was able to talk about, the his town being bombed and about the bomb shelters and those incidences in such a vivid way that when I wrote about um, those kinds of experiences in the novel, I really drew on what he had discussed with me. Um, and, you know, he told me about his brothers um, fighting in the continuation war. So his brother Vako actually lost his um, life after he um caught pneumonia. He was one of those ski troopers. And the other brother, my uncle Hamo, lost um, a leg during the war. So, you know, it makes the incidences um, in wartime, like, come out of the history book and into your, your you know, understanding as um, these are human beings who, who were impacted. Um, so I think his, his discussion of the Winter War really helped me understand it from a personal point of view. Um, and then there were some Lothas Spards that I would have liked to have interviewed. I know there's a, a lady in particular in Sudbury 
um, who I was connected to, but she was not interested in talking about her experiences. And I respect that, right? If somebody says, no, I'm not, I don't want to discuss it. So I, it was unfortunate though, because I would, I would have loved to have learned from her first, first person experiences what had happened. Um, but you know, people aren't always ready to revisit these really painful parts of their past. Um, but um, you know, as you say, there's lots of other ways to do research. And so I was able to, like, I tried to read as much as I could. Um, in particular, there were um, some really great uh, nonfiction books so, that I thought were really excellent. So there's one, um, Eloise Engel and Laurie Bannanen's uh, book called The Winter War from 1973. So that's a little bit older book, but, you know, sort of a classic. And then um, Eino Yutikala and Galgo Birinen have a book called A History of Finland. And that kind of covers not just the Winter War and the Continuation War, but gives you kind of a sense of Finnish history. Uh, that's from 1984. Uh, and I found that really, really useful. And that's a book that I keep going back to. When I'm like, okay, wait a minute, what about that? So I'll go back to that book um, as a has an interesting source. Um, another book that people might be familiar with is William Trotter's um, A Frozen Hell. That was published in 1991. And that's an excellent, excellent source. Um, and another little book that I, I find useful is uh, Henrik Ameinander's, and this is also called The History of Finland. So not so many variations in the titles of these books. Um, and then there was a two volume set. One is called Finland at War, and the other one's called, uh, oh, they're both called Finland at War. One's about the continuation war and one's about the winter war. And it's Vesa Nenya. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. That's from 2015. And I think those were excellent. Those are probably the most comprehensive books. Like if you want me, if you're looking for um, information about those wars, I think that's probably the like for English language anyway, um, very up to date um, and very comprehensive. So those books were very useful. Um, there wasn't, I didn't find too, too much in terms of novels in English, but I did find a book called The Winter War by William Durbin. And it's more of a young adult book, I would say about a young boy named Marco, Marco who volunteers and then another one about Antizori, which is called The Winter War. Surprise, surprise. Um, and it's about a man, man's experiences during the war. And it's based on interviews and diaries and other accounts. So I felt like that was really fascinating um, fictional, fictionalized book. And then um, in terms of films, there were two that I really loved. One was Fire and Ice. And that's a 2006 documentary. Um, that was really useful. And then there's a Finnish movie, but I was able to watch it with English subtitles, which was great because I don't <laughs> speak Finnish. And it's called Lupas, which means promise. And it was about three young Lakasvards. And I felt that was really useful for like seeing what um, the experiences of the Lakas were um, during the wartime. Um, and then there's lots of online things as well of, for instance, the Finnish Defense Forces have a wartime photography archive. And I, I'm a person who really loves the visuals. So when I'm writing, I often have a bulletin board beside me with um, images and uh, people and environments. And, you know, it really helps me to visualize things as I'm working. Um, and another... Um, Oh, the Lux of Svards also have a great website as well that um, you can access in English. And then my father had a pile of magazines called 
which means the nation fought. And those magazines are sitting at my camp on Panache. And I, uh, one summer, just grabbed a whole bunch of those. And unfortunately, because I can't read them, um, it, that part wasn't so useful, but I was able to look at the images. And so definitely the Finnish language was a barrier in that case. But these magazines were published between 1957 and 1986. And so we have like great, great images and photographs from the wartime and uh, the Lothas and, um, you know, it, they really tell a story. And so that was really helpful for me in imagining what this might have been like. Um, so the challenge for me was finding resources in English that were going to be helpful because there's much more out there that's in Finnish that I just couldn't access, unfortunately. But those are a few, few of the things that I felt were important for anyone's interested in. Um, you know, looking into the Winter War, Continuation War, um, from the historical point of view. Can you say more about the research process that you went into this book, that you invested in this book and that went into this book? What mm -hmm. obstacles did you encounter and how did you overcome them? Yeah, so um, I was fortunate um, because I received an Ontario Arts Council grant in 2018 and I was able to use that to go to Finland and I went to uh, the Lotha Museum which is in Thusala which is outside of Helsinki and they have an excellent um, excellent resources there they have um, all kinds of artifacts and descriptions and videos and so I spent a lot of time they're just soaking it up, right? So the, and taking pictures. And um, and I actually got a really great little book called Lotus Fard by the Lotus Fard Foundation, which was very useful as well. So that was, um, the, for me, if I can go to the places that I'm writing about, it's so much better to be able to 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 um, describe them and to like feel like I, you know, can have something to say about them. Um, we also decided to travel to... Um, Viberg in Russia and to get there from Finland you take a you go by canal and uh, it was formerly Finnish in Finland it was called Vibri and so that was a really fascinating place to go to and I have some scenes set in Vibri or Viberg and um, so again just walking the streets and just getting a sense of place and getting a sense where, where things are located and I mean uh, you know, for me as a writer, that's really useful. Um, there was another Lotha museum as well in Lappenranta, which is the where we uh, the dock was to go on, uh, you know, this boat to the, um, Weberg. And in Lappenranta, there was a really excellent museum as well that dealt with the Lotha Sparts. And I was shocked because when we got there, there was a full big table with a 3D model of Vipuri or Weberg uh, and it was 1939, which is exactly the time period I needed, right? 1939, 1940, and what it what, what the city looked like, and how it was laid out, and where everything was located, and that gave you kind of a bird's eye view of um, of that place. And then when we actually went to Vipuri, then you when you're walking the streets, you could kind of feel like where you were in time and space, and that was fascinating. Um, and of course, I went to Suomenlinna, which is the museum. Um, in Helsinki that has lots of um, excellent um, resources there in terms of both wars and the Lothas. So for me, going to Finland was so important for the research. And of course, all the reading and um, 
exploration I did apart from that, um, just to get a real sense of what was going on in terms of the background of this novel. Um, But again, the barriers always for me are the language. And it's so unfortunate because I had every opportunity to learn to finish as a child. My parents spoke Finnish in the home <laughs> and they spoke Finnish to my my brothers when they were, um, you know, young, but my, I had two older brothers and then myself and I, um, one other brother, we didn't get as much Finnish. Um, so I just didn't learn the language and that is so unfortunate now because I'd have so much more access to things if I could uh, speak their, their native tongue. Um, but yeah, so I feel like, you know, like I say, writing historical fiction just requires so much background information, even if it doesn't show up on the page. Like I need to know that I need to understand that in my mind to be able to write about it and have it make sense. And, um, yeah, it's, it's can be a very challenging part of writing a novel, but also, um, very, um, like for me, it's very gratifying. And I, I feel like I'm coming to understand my Finnish history and appreciate all of these things that my relatives have been through and um, understand, uh, you know, the, the experience of coming here to Canada and um, what they were leaving behind and, and why they're still so connected. Like I think as a, as a group, Finnish people tend to be very connected to Finland even after having been here for 30, 40, 50, 70 years, there's still a strong draw. And um, part of it is this history and part of it is the, um, you know, just still the connection. Like I, for instance, on my dad's side, I have so many relatives still there and my mom's side as well. And, um, you know, so it's, it's just trying to come to under, understand all of those things and try to um, convey them in a way that makes sense to people. Um, through fiction. In what ways was the process of writing this novel therapeutic for you? Can you elaborate and go into more detail about how you personally grew and changed during the course of preparing this book? Yeah, it's, uh, so I was saying that that the uh, writing for me is therapeutic anyway, right? So I, I do feel like it's important for me to be writing. I feel like that's how I gather um a good sense of self like I I can it's like maybe somebody else meditates but <laughs> I like to write uh so that part is important regardless of what I'm writing but I think perhaps it's this exploration of things that um my dad was discussing in his nonfiction book right the book I wrote about him um I think that was a very therapeutic book for him and um it, enlightening to me but this one let me get into um for instance the head of alzheimer's person and maybe i that helped me understand what he was going through and because it was such a difficult time for everybody to witness that so this was allowing me to put it on the page and i'm not sure that you when you put it on the page you leave it there but perhaps there's something to that that i Um, you know, he died in 2018 at the age of 90 and I'd already started writing this book by that point, but, um, I was definitely exploring, um, the Alzheimer's issues then. So I, I do think there's some therapeutic nature to taking, you know, life events and trying to describe them and trying to see them from a different point of view and trying to explore them that, um, is helpful for me personally 
um, maybe to understand what happened and what, why people go through these things. Or, I mean, I'm not sure that there's any, there's no, never any answers per se, but, um, yeah, I think that, that writing is, is that for me is important is, um, yeah, it's hard to, I think this is hard for me to articulate really how, how it affects me, but I, I think that it's, and it is, I'm drawn to these topics because I need to understand them better. And how do I understand them? I understand them, A, by researching, okay, but B, by exploring them from an emotional standpoint. So, I mean, you know, somebody writing a historical book will get the facts, but I feel like by writing a novel, you're you're exploring the emotions, you're exploring the people, you're exploring how um, people come to these events and can navigate their way, their way through them. And so I think that marries both the history and uh, human humanity together <laughs> in some way. So yeah, I'm not sure if I'm describing that very well, but <laughs> I'm gonna have to think about that as therapeutic aspect more as I'm moving forward. It's a good question. What role does Sweden play in this story? How is Sweden presented in your novel? How close is the depiction of Sweden in your novel to the historical record? In particular, can you perhaps comment on the experiences of Swedish war children in both your novel and in the history as it unfolded? Right. So um, I wanted to have one of the children, one of the sisters, um, be a war child. Uh, I was uh, sort of interested in um, Sweden's role. So um, I focused on um, researching the, the war children. So little Nadia is um, the youngest of the three sisters. And um, as I said earlier, Mary is trying to keep the sisters together, keep the family together, and she's really protective. But when their town is bombed and they run into the um, bomb shelter, Mary um, realizes that the, the war is at their doorstep. And so it's, you know, she's had some pressure to send Nadia away to Sweden. And that's a role that Sweden play. They took in um, all these war children um, during the war um, and put them into sort of foster homes, right? And so, they, so although I don't go into great detail about what happens to Nadia there, like it's because it's Mary's story and we're following Mary, um, what, what I know about that situation is, um, some of the war children had extremely excellent care in Sweden. They were taken care of, they were clothed and fed and educated and their experiences were, were really great. Other children from Finland going to Sweden did not have good experiences. And you can imagine, um, all of the traumatic things that may have happened to them in these foster care situations. Um, likewise, some of the war children came back to Finland and they were coming home to towns that had been devastated or to, you know, um, lots of unrest and um, you know, families who were struggling or who had lost their uh, male, um, um, you know, parental figures. And, um, you know, so coming back to Finland was traumatic for some of those kids because they were leaving sort of relative safety and coming back to a situation that wasn't so good. Um, so the, the war children are, are fascinating to me and so much so that although I read about them briefly with Nadia and um, being taken away by Nordic aid and um, traveling to uh, Sweden, 
Um, I've actually written a book um, about a Finnish war child who uh, is sent to Sweden during um, both winter war and continuation war and eventually comes to Canada uh, in Northern Ontario to work at a lumber camp and her experiences, which are not, of course, good experiences of um, the Swedish experience for those children. But that's not to say that not, you know, some children had good experiences and in the case of Nadia, I um, feel like her experience was positive. In fact, she is somebody who stays in Sweden, as many of them did. Um, some came back, some returned to those families, some actually got adopted by those families. So there's a, a, any number of scenarios for this, the, the war children. Um, and there's been lots of studies done about the war children also in the last couple of decades, uh, focusing on their um, experiences and health and mental states as a result of having been of war children. And I think that's a fascinating thing to look at too, is, is you know, we sent, they were sent there um, for their protection and yet that is not necessarily what happened and that they lived with that um, PTSD and various things after coming back to, to Finland. Um, and those, again, those conversations are happening now, but for a long time, people didn't talk about them, right? For decades, people didn't talk about their experiences as um, either as soldiers or as lotas or as war children. Um, now we're hearing more of those stories and I think they're important to tell. So that was, um, that was important to me to, to investigate that further. I think little Nadia in the story actually is the one who inspired me to think, okay, I want to know more about these, these children and what happened to them. What's this novel teach us about women's experiences during the winter war and the continuation war? How does this novel approach questions of gender in Finnish history during World War II? Yeah, so again, I was really so fascinated by the women's experiences and we know that stories about women from you know Britain and from France and um, all over the world during World War II, those stories are becoming more prevalent. And um, so for me, it was like, what were the women doing? And so that's how I came to understand a little bit more about the Lotta Sparta organization. So this organization was formed in 1919 after the Finnish Civil War between the Red and White Finns. Uh, but prior to 1918, they were, um, they were already uh, sort of local organizations and different towns had these, you know, groups of women who were uh, forming um, and sort of uh, assisting the civil guard. And the idea was that they would protect religion and home and fatherland. That's kind of the overriding idea. But during the winter war and they, um, by, I would say by the beginning of the war, there was probably 100,000 women who were part of that organization. But by 1944, there was like 232,000 women were Lotha Sparts. And so uh, at the time, it was the biggest paramilitary or female paramilitary organization in the world. So that I felt like that's pretty something. And even the young women, the young girls were literally called Bikulotas, which are little Lotas. And they had, you know, activities to do and things they learned. And so it didn't really matter what age you were. And older women were also involved in lots of ways. Um, so during the war, the women sort of served in different divisions. Um, so for instance, medical lotas were in hospitals, they were at dressing stations at the front lines, they would work in field hospitals, 
um, in military hospitals. And like my character, Maddie is sort of a nurse assistant. Um, so that allowed them to like allows her anyway, to be able to move from working at a hospital in her town to being able to work at a, you know, military and field hospital, um, on the Eastern border. Um, but Lothas served lots of other purposes too. For instance, there were office Lothas who were typists and signalers, and they worked at headquarters. Um, there were aerial surveillance Lothas, um, and they, you know, met, they were at the air raid warning posts and defense centers. Um, you know, office and communication lothas dealt with the correspondence. Uh, they were radio operators, um, and you know there was there was lothas who cared for horses. There were I think eighty thousand horses were on active duty during the war, and then there were women who um, were part of the catering division. Uh, There's something like hundred thousand kilos of bread were made every day, so something crazy like that. Um, you know, and there was also the centers for the evacuation of the dead. So there were individuals whose role it was to care for um, and prepare the dead and send them home because the Finnish people did not want any mass burials. They wanted their family members to come home to them. And so Lothas were responsible for preparing those bodies and sending them home, which I think was a very difficult, difficult job to do. And I had to have a scene where Medi is involved in, in that, um, that moment. So, you know, I just found it really interesting to see the ways in which women were highly involved in the war, that they were not bystanders, they were like actively participating. They were unarmed because a manner, Gustav, uh, Carl Gustav Mannerheim, the general found on women carrying weapons but there were a couple of women oh well, i shouldn't say a couple but there was a group of women who who were um allowed to, and had uh basic training and but most lothas were unarmed um and as a result of the war i think it was somewhere in the range of 300 lothas were killed in either bombings or explosions and some of them were even taken as prisoner prisoner of war um during the two wars um but unfortunately after uh, September 1944, after the war was over, uh, part of the agreement was that the Lata organization was, had to disband, and that was part of the interim peace agreement. So they no longer existed. Um, so for me, like they were just, it was fascinating to find out what exactly was what they were doing and how involved they were and how um, integral they were to the war effort. What role do loyalty and disloyalty play in this story? Yeah, I think loyalty is an extremely important idea in this story because my main character really it feels loyalty on lots of levels. So for instance, she's very loyal to her family and wants to keep them together, as I mentioned earlier, um, and take care of her, her, her sisters. Um, and she pledges an oath, they're called the Golden Words, um, to the Lotus Varda organization. And so she, you know, with these golden words, she pledges to be, um, uh, uphold all the standards and the morality of the organization. And yet the circumstances she's be being put under mean that she's sometimes disloyal or would be at least somebody would be able to say that she's being disloyal. And yet, she's kind of always trying to work for the um 
towards her goal. So she doesn't always do the right things. Um, and later on in her own marriage, um, you know, she is, she's been loyal to the same person for a long time. And, um, yet there is, um, moments of disloyalty there too, which threaten the marriage. And, um, you know, we see that too, by the end of the story, uh, and she has compassion for, for, um, an individual that she was, I don't want to give too many things away, uh, that she was involved with, um, during the winter war and, um, feels like she's kept secrets and needs to reveal them to him and needs to find him. So, you know, there's the promises that she makes and then there's, there's the, um, human side of, of breaking promises and trying to, do better and trying to be better for other people. So I think that, you know, from a personal standpoint for Maddie, like her loyalties, she thinks she's loyal to all of these, you know, family and country and the organization and, and, and her husband and all those things. And yet she does make a lot of mistakes and, um, is at times would be considered disloyal in lots of ways. Um, yeah, so I, d- I just wanted her to be a little bit more complex than just, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do and this is how it's going to go. Like, I, I needed her to be, you know, making human mistakes, as we all do. What role does olfactory imagery play in this novel? Can you comment on the importance of smell in this work? Yeah, I love that question because what we know about um, scents and smells is that they carry with them a real uh, memory. So uh, I like to write about um, scents and and different smells uh, as best I can because I feel like the reader will, when they when you come across that description, you can immediately understand it. And you also immediately, without knowing it, connect to a, a memory of your own, right? So you can really connect with a reader through through those things. And um, I think it's just a really interesting thing that our brain is able to do and that how smell can really, um, you know, connect to our memory. Like if I talk, like depending on, on your childhood, but if I talk about this you know, scent of fresh baked cookies, lots of people will be transported to another moment in time and another space in time, whether it's a grandparent making cookies or a parent or, 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 um, you, you immediately have sort of a, sort of a connection to something in your own past. And I think that's a really powerful thing to be able to access if you can, and not that our memories are all the same. So you're, but I think that's interesting about novels too, when we're reading them, I've written the words, but you're, you're reading uh, from your own experience. You're bringing things to the table that I haven't necessarily thought about. So you're bringing um, your own experiences and your own understanding of the world and, and your own maybe traumatic events or whatever to the reading. And so it informs the story. So the story becomes yours in a way that um, is, is unique to each individual reader. So I think having sense and smells just helps people access memory and uh, connect them to story even more strongly. As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you kindly tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this? What are you working on now as your current project? What have you been 
devoting your attention to next after this has been put behind you? Yeah, thanks for asking. I have a couple of projects on the go. I have a historical fiction novel that is um, done. I, I would say done loosely because there's always more work to do before it actually gets published. Um, and it's set in the 1930s in a mining town in Northern Ontario, i.e. Sudbury. And it's um, two Finnish domestic workers, their sisters. One of them um, is found dead and the other wants to find out what happened to her so again I'm not sort of looking at Finnish history but also a bit of a mystery in this one and then I was mentioning earlier I have a novel that is also in that sort of late draft form and it is about a Finnish war child who is sent to Sweden and has some a variety of different foster care situations that do not go very well, eventually comes to Northern Ontario to try to start again um, and is working at a lumber camp. So that novel is um, almost done. Um, and I have been working uh, at getting certified um, to be a book coach. So that is uh, a role that I'm really excited about because I can help others to tell their stories. And I'm primarily interested in working with people who are historical fiction writers or literary fiction writers or creative nonfiction. So memoir, because I just love memoir as well. And I've worked with some young adults, uh, novelists as well. So um, that's sort of a, my next um, step in life now that I've retired from teaching high school. And I have the, a seed of an idea for a novel, a more contemporary novel this time set in Northern Ontario. Um, and I'm gonna not say too much about that yet because it's just a little seed and it needs to grow <laughs> before I, I get there. So there's always another idea in the back of my mind that I wanna get, get working on. So lots of things happening and we'll see um, um, how that all plays out in the next few years. <laughs> That's terrific. I'm so proud of you and so impressed. Thank you so much, Ari. I appreciate it. As we bring our dialogue today to a close, I am signing off by reminding you that I'm Ari Barbalat, your host today on the New Books Network podcast. Today, I have been in dialogue with Lisa Kovala. She is an author and a book coach and a retired teacher of English in the Ontario High School system. We have been discussing her recently published novel, Sisu's Winter War, published in Sudbury by Latitude 46 Publishing 2022. Thank you wholeheartedly.